The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Ms. Barhaven, I'm the assistant editor at The Spectator and author of a book on the history of the NHS, which comes out in paperback tomorrow, just so you know. But thank you so much uh, for coming to this panel on ageing well, making the UK a world leader in tackling dementia and Alzheimer's. We've got a fantastic panel of experts on this topic to talk to you this afternoon. We're going to have a discussion and then we're going to open up to questions on this. So I'm joined by Susan Mitchell, who is Head of Policy at Alzheimer's Research, Emily Pegg, who is Associate Vice President of Eli of Medical uh, at Lilly Northern Europe. And I should say that Eli Lilly are sponsoring this panel to support this event, but they have no influence over the content of the event or uh, the selection of the speakers, uh, as discussed in the previous uh, discussion. Debbie Abrahams is a Labour MP. She's also chair of the APPG for Dementia. And uh, Professor Giovanna Malucci is principal investigator of Altos Labs in Cambridge, at the Cambridge Institute of Science. Uh, so I don't think you could get a better panel to discuss this. And so often discussions about dementia can be quite downbeat, not least because of the way in which the NHS and social care, uh, do I want to say services or lack of services quite often, tend to interact or not. Uh, but we've decided to make this research focus. We've decided to make this about the future of dementia research and treatment in the United Kingdom and whether the ambition so often articulated by politicians that this country is going to be a science superpower could extend to research within the dementia sphere. So I think it would be great to start with uh, Susan to talk about the, the research landscape, to talk about where we are, about how hopeful, I suppose, you feel about dementia, whether the diagnosis that someone gets today of something that they will die with and that their family will see someone their decline in, it will be in future something that actually people feel they can live with. Uh, so I'll, I'll pose that question to you and then we'll go along the panel. Thank you. Thanks, Isabel. Great to be here today. Um, I think we are at a historic moment for dementia we are at a stage where we might actually see the first treatments which change progression of the disease. Dementia is a condition which affects about a million people in the UK. It is the leading cause of death. If you are diagnosed with it, you will die of it. Um, and there's nothing at the moment we can do to change that progression. We have uh, two drugs under regulatory review at the moment, and it, it, it could be the historic moment that changes the future. Um, so from a research perspective, it's a hugely exciting time. We have seen a commitment to research over the, the past sort of 13 years, which has made huge progress. We can see a kind of reawakening and interest in the field, which I think is profound, which offers actual finally some hope to people affected by dementia and their families who do so much to support people living with dementia. I think... The new treatments are a start, and I think as a, as a charity, Alzheimer's Research UK has a mission to try and ultimately find a cure. That is far, far away at this point, but we see the steps forward and we see the hope that these um, first treatments might offer. So I think the field is at a great time. I think treatments are the start, but I think there will not be everything, and so actually we need more research that will look at some of the other aspects, the other mechanisms, mechanisms of disease 
associated with Alzheimer's disease, but there are actually almost 200 diseases that can cause dementia. So we actually need better understanding of those and the other mechanisms that go on. I think not only have we got treatments, but we also need to think about how people can reduce their risk of developing dementia. The research around what we can do from a public health and prevention perspective is huge, and that's an emerging area of research. So I think there's a lot more we can do across the piece. I think it's a really exciting time. Thank you so much. Emily, can you just give us a picture of the work that, that you're doing, uh, that you uh, see, that the development of, of drugs for this, for instance? How, how hopeful, how exciting, I guess, or how, also how commercially interesting is this field? Yeah, so pleasure to be here and really proud to be sponsoring this event. Thank you for having me. Um, I think, you know, we are, we certainly understand from a from a, a medical and scientific perspective that there's no sort of silver bullet at this point. You know, we know that. But it's also clear that as a collective, we're making huge scientific advances and that's incredibly exciting. And we're really proud to be part of that. As an organisation, we've, we've done research into Alzheimer's for over 30 years. And, you know, we're, yeah, we're really, we're proud to be part of that journey. I think where we need to think about, though, is even if we have potential treatments on the horizon, we need patients diagnosed with the conditions because it's not all about Alzheimer's, for example. There's many dementias and many causes and many modifiable risk factors, as you've already mentioned. But, you know, we need people with a clear diagnosis. We know from, from research that people like having a diagnosis, even if there is no treatment available, because they like knowing what they're dealing with. So you can't forget that. Fantastic. Thank you. Debbie, that's a really interesting point about the diagnostic pathway, isn't it? Because it's not just a dementia diagnosis, it's a specific type of dementia diagnosis that people are waiting for more than a year to see. You must see that in your constituency surgeries and indeed in your work uh, on the APPG. Absolutely. So um, the APPG um, on dementia, which I'm, uh, been an, it's been an honour to co-chair for the last sort of seven or eight years, we actually published a report on um, the inequalities in, in dementia diagnosis, which, as Emily has, has just said, it's so important to have not just a general diagnosis, but also a specific diagnosis, um, because the current therapies that are available are uh, our focus on Alzheimer's disease, which my, which is what my mum had and was the reason I really got involved here. So we really do need to make sure that, first of all, we get uh, more di diagnosis. We need to address the inequalities um, that, are, that are experienced both regionally um, and for different uh, cohorts uh, of, of people. So, for example, I don't know why, but Stoke has the highest uh, rate of di uh, dementia diagnosis at over 80%. My Oldham constituency is a little bit less than that, but we have really low levels of 40% of, of in the southwest as, as well. So we need to be addressing that. And as I say, also looking at the groups that, that are also underrepresented in the, in the dementia uh, rate. And then the particular bit about specific diagnosis, if people are going to... Uh, have um, the treatments that are, are coming on stream. Thank you very much. And in terms of those treatments, Giovanna, uh, one of your discoveries was uh, the reversibility of early neurodegeneration. So I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and I suppose about the, the, the work you're doing now on, on that reversibility and on other treatments. Yeah, so thank you. And uh, it's great to be here. So I, I mean, I really come from the coalface of dementia research, and I'm a dementia physician. So I've been doing laboratory work for about 25 years on uh, causes and prevention of neurodegeneration. And I think there is excitement about the antibodies for Alzheimer's, but I think that's almost 
very peripheral. The main problem we have with dementia is that we get it when we age, and the world is aging, and all the world is aging, which includes China and India and South America. So these are very populous places. And it already costs 2% of the world's GDP to care for dementia. So as you age, that, that becomes... I mean, there's an economic crisis coming quite above the sort of personal and, and medical you know, disaster that's coming. And I think the emphasis has to be healthy aging, prevention of risk factors. I think these targeted treatments, reducing antibody load, are very comforting for a small minority, but they're not the way forward. And um, I guess the focus... So, so my, my background before I joined Altos Labs um, is also that I was director of the UK Dementia Research Institute at the University of Cambridge. So this was part of the Prime Minister's 2012 um, initiative on, on dementia back in, back in the day. So we've very much been trying to drive a much broader, a much more holistic approach to making the brain a healthier organ as we age. Because if you have a healthy, resilient brain, you will be resistant and, and be able to slow the progression of these diseases. So my fundamental belief is, for the future, is that dementia will be like HIV was. So when I was training as a junior doctor, people died of AIDS within days or weeks. And now you can have HIV and you can just live with this. And I think dementia will become something, probably not quite as dramatic, but we will have ways of containing the progression, which I think isn't focused on antibodies to, to plaques. I think it's much more to do with general resilience, fitness, and management of risk factors, and a really multi-pronged approach to making cells in the brain fit and able to cope with stress. So what we found in mouse models is that if you make a diseased cell, if you, if you reduce any number of, number of stress pathways within, within brain cells, you can make a mouse res resistant and resilient against brain cell death. So it really, it almost, I think we have, to, I think one of the dangers in dementia in the research field for many, many years has been a really focused approach towards a specific target. What we really need is just to get brain cells as healthy as you can, because you never make, we're born with all our neurons anyway. We never make any more. We just lose them as we grow, or grow older, which is the, the terrible, and, then we, and we lose them more rapidly as we age, of course, which makes us so vulnerable. But you can boost those populations. And I think one more thing to say is that actually the incident of dementia predicted for the age of our world population is actually lower than expected. So the, the actual incident is lower than predicted because of the preventative effects of lifestyle modification and risk factor modification. So we can do it. And it's not going to be a silver bullet. It's, it's going to be a whole range of you know, fitness initiatives, including obesity. I mean, that's, that's such a great point to open our discussion on because we have had a discussion of lifestyle issues politically over the past few months. But it's all been about smoking and vaping, hasn't it? And I was quite surprised when Rishi Sunak decided to focus on, on smoking, on, you know, undoubtedly a risk to health, when a, a much greater driver of NHS spending, and as you say, specific diseases, a much greater risk factor, not just for dementia, but for cancer, is obesity. And that's not something that is particularly being discussed at the moment in terms of the preventive agenda within the NHS, with, within politics. Debbie, I'm just going to come to you as the politician. It, it is difficult, isn't it, for politicians to, to talk about obesity without seeming as though they are being judgmental or as though they're going into the nanny state, although perhaps your party 
loves nanny more than it did a few years ago because you're you know you want to go into schools and brush children's teeth so why not uh start tackling other uh, other problems such as obesity in, in a more sort of interventionist way so um as well as being chair of the uh APPG on uh, or co-chair on, on dementia I was a former public health consultant and and this uh, is is really important to me as as, as well so I would look at for example, why we experience um, and we have particular issues around food deserts, where healthy food being accessible to people is 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 expensive, where we have large groups of people who are who can't survive without food banks, and where there isn't necessarily the the diet that um, that you would be advocating for them, where. To feel satisfied and less hungry, you eat high-sugar, high-fat foods, which isn't good for you overall. So you need to look at what is driving that as, as, as well. And I would put it back to those sort of things. We have, we just had a meeting last, last night to, to think of the sort of things we want to be pushing as I'm a backbencher, so I can, I can say this, what we want to be pushing in our manifesto. And, and we came across the figure that our social security support is now less, less than it was when Lloyd George first implemented it in 1911, as a proportion of income, less. What on earth do we expect people to survive on? We have extreme levels of poverty, of destitution, as the JRF 2024 report told. What do we expect people to do? And there's, you know, they, they can't shop around. Um, for and, and, and travel to the, the cheapest supermarkets. They get what's on their doorstep and what is satisfying and that's not going to wake their kids up in the middle of the night because they're hungry. And in terms of just within the health system, so social security being one, one serious issue, but in terms of the NHS, your shadow health secretary, West Streeting, has talked a lot about preventive health care, but not necessarily about the measures that will be necessary, particularly if Rachel Reeves is chancellor, to shift resources from acute to preventive health care, which will be important in tackling obesity. So do you think your party's ready for the necessary fight that it's going to have that will involve closing hospitals in order to fund primary and preventive services properly? Because you're not going to get a whole wardrobe spending cash for both, unless Rachel Reeves is just, you know, on a sort of no carbs before Marbs diet, and then there's going to be a free for all at the week you can eat spending buffet yeah, after I, the election. I don't think I don't think we'll be suggesting what Rishi Sunak does, which is to, to starve himself on a on a Sunday and a Monday. That's that certainly won't come. So you're all right, folks. You're, you you don't have to expect that. But I think you know it is a look looking about. We know that the biggest impact on, on our health and our well-being as, as a whole is around structural inequalities. We know that the biggest driver of this, and I say this having worked in the department with Margaret Whitehead, who many will remember in terms of the health divide in the, in the 1980s, where the biggest driver is around socioeconomic policies. So also within the commitments around our health mission is to make sure that at key fiscal events, such as the upcoming budget, we would set out what is going to be the impact on poverty and inequality, and then the knock-on in terms of health. Many of you will have also seen uh, the child health report that came out earlier this, this, this week, which shows that we have one of the most extreme uh, rates of infant mortality in the developed world. You know, this, this is driven by, uh, by uh, child poverty. So we would need to make sure, as committed in the health mission, that we get our, our policies right. That is the biggest driver to us having healthy 
lifestyles and, and being healthy ourselves. Thank you. Susan, in terms of political priorities, my sense has always been that politicians, when, you know, when they visit a hospital, they tend to go to, to NICU and maybe the cardio, cardiothoracic wing or something like that, rather than geriatrics. They'll often miss out the entire floor there. Do you think ageing, with an ageing population, do you think dementia, geriatric medicine are going to become more of a political priority or is it always going to be a backwater because frankly we personally don't want to think about what's going to happen to us as we age until it happens to us i mean i think there are several factors going on in this case um you're right there's a point about aging and what that feels like as an individual we do know that dementia is one of the most feared conditions in later life partly because there's been no hope and i think the first treatments might start to change that and as as Emma was saying, that our role around diagnosis is so important. I think it is important to recognise there has actually been some attention around dementia since 2010. And actually, David Cameron did show real leadership in terms of actually bringing it to, the, to the, then what was the G8 stage with a kind of global commitment. That did really raise the bar. Dementia research has been vastly under-invested. We often say, somewhat facetiously, we talk about HIV, but we probably say we're probably 40 years behind cancer, both in terms of research spend, in terms of where we are with, with progress. So there is that, that basic point, I think, has at least been acknowledged and there is work towards it, but we're starting from a small base. I think with that is always the challenge. If you have been close to one political party as, as, a, as a topic, it can be harder to then be, to continue to have that kind of um, interest in subsequent either political leaders or political parties. However, dementia is a growing um, condition. You know, there are more people who will be developing it in the future if we don't change aging well more generally so I think it would be a mistake for any political party to ignore it it is huge its impact is huge not only for the a million people living with dementia we think it will be over a million and a half by 2040 but we know the profound impact on the loved ones and the wider families that support those people so it's not just one person that has dementia it's a whole um, community around them you know one in two people either will be will be affected by directly by dementia either by having it or caring for someone or caring for someone and having it so its footprint is significant i think it it cannot help but be a political priority it doesn't have the glamour and beauty we don't have the we don't have this i don't use the word survivor because again that's facetious but people do not are not in a position to advocate themselves and that is much harder Obviously, having cancer is a significant condition, but there are many people who live through it who can talk about and advocate the impact that had for their lives. We don't have that. We aspire to get there. And I think we need to recognise there are some slightly different dynamics in the dementia space. Now, dementia did exist when the NHS was set up, but it wasn't as widespread. It wasn't, as you said, a sort of fear that looms for people in the way that it does today. And so the health service was not set up to deal with an ageing population, people with complex conditions, many different diagnoses. Do you think it is functioning for dementia patients, particularly where it's not their only diagnosis and where they're going through multiple different strands of the health service to, you know, to have their diabetes dealt with or to have, you know, a cancer diagnosis dealt with at the same time? It must, it's very difficult um, often for dementia patients to understand what treatment is happening to them when their, you know, when their cognitive abilities have, have declined? I mean, to put it most starkly, I would say no. I don't think the NHS is, is, is dealing with that now. And I think it's like many other conditions. I think the NHS is amazing. If you have a road traffic accident, you get to A&E, you will, have an, um, you know, you will be well looked after. I think with, with cancer, I know clearly there are challenges, but you can see where we are. 
With dementia, in England, a third of people don't even have a diagnosis. Of the two-thirds that do, many of them don't even know the disease that's causing their dementia. It happens really late, as we've touched on. People are waiting a year to get a diagnosis. People aren't even getting referred. I personally have an ageing father who couldn't even be referred by his GP because he had... There were, there were rationales and reasons why it wasn't possible. But it's delayed that position. People are left in limbo. People are left trying to support someone who they don't even know what the situation is. And a diagnosis of dementia is positive, but a diagnosis of if it not being dementia, if it being something else, is also hugely important. We often talk about focusing on getting you on the pathway, but also getting you off the pathway can be really powerful. So we are not dealing with it well. And as you said, people with dementia often have several other health conditions. It's hugely complicated. If you've got diabetes and you're not taking your diabetes drug because you're forgetting to take it, you're not managing your diabetes. And then, you know, you've got all of those side effects. And I think, again, we need to be holistic. We're talking about dementia here, but this is never, very rarely a condition that comes alone. And I think we need to think about how we work across disease areas collectively, because so much of this is common, particularly in later life. Emily, as, as, a, as a research priority, as a, as a research area that could be something that Britain leads the world in, what does, what does the sector need in order to, to grow? Does it need just more attention? Does it need to be more exciting so that it attracts more researchers who might be uh, more minded to go into other areas? What, what do you want, basically? Yeah, so I think um, coming with this sort of industry lens and how we help the UK in particular be a real you know, sort of life sciences superpower, if you like. We have to always remember that we are in competition directly with other countries when we come to, for example, allocating um, patient you know, trial sites to an international study of a new therapeutic. Obviously, that's the sort of lens I come with. But, you know, also in terms of broader scientific basic research, you know, we're, this is an international, it's an international arena, if you like. So in the UK, we want to be, you know, we have had significant issues with trial delays, for example, you know, delays in setting up sites, then we set up sites, but then it's difficult to recruit the patients because the patients aren't getting referred through, we're not getting a diagnosis quick enough, so we can't put them into the actual trials. And so we want to be at the forefront, but unless we can speed up some of the bits around trials, it's very difficult for us to compete against some of those other countries and be the people who get those big trials. So I guess I say I'm bringing the sort of industry lens, but we really need to think about how we do that better if the UK is really going to do well. When you say delays in setting up sites, what do you mean actually physically getting space to do the trials or actually moving into, you know, recruiting doctors who are then going to recruit patients? Just, just unpack that a little. Yeah, so um, I guess when we're setting up... When we're setting up a, an international trial, we are obviously looking to get a range of patients across a number of different countries. So we've got a, a, mix, a mixed demographic of patients that's representative overall. We're going to go to a number of different countries. And when we get to individual sites, we need them to be able to set up. So they've got to have the infrastructure, a clinical re research infrastructure, whereby they can set up a site. That patient's going to need additional visits over and above what they would usually have in clinical care can have longer to, for example, counsel them about the ins and outs of the trial, consent them, etc. So it takes more time. We often need specific um, dedicated research staff who are going to deliver that. The challenge we've seen, particularly post-COVID, is that many of those, those individuals were maybe then assigned to other parts of hospitals, for example, and in some, in some cases they haven't been reassigned. So we then get this, we may get to a point where the trial is set up 
but then it's very hard to deliver against the patient commitment. It'd be really interesting to hear your view from a, from a um, you know, frontline perspective, but from an industry perspective, it's hard then to recruit the number of patients because they require quite a lot of time and effort in order to get them through the trial. And obviously those trials may last two years or three years. So it's, uh, it's complex, it requires people, it requires infrastructure, and that's not always there. Giovanna, does that chime with your experience? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we learned a lot in COVID, didn't we? You can speed these things up and we should speed them up. Has and it gone backwards, do you feel? It's just gone back to what it was, which right. is really slow. Right. And so that really takes our competitive edge away, whereas COVID waved so much of that to get those RNA vaccines going. And, you know, we can do these things quicker. And the thing with dementia is, and this will resonate with you particularly, is, you know, I recruit a patient to a trial. Within six months, that patient no longer qualifies for the trial because they've progressed. So, you know, if slowness in this field is fatal and we'll never get an answer, it's especially with the kind of readouts that people have been using in you know, two years time span, it's, it's going to be very difficult. I think the clinical trials is, so I mean, research comes in two big areas, doesn't it? It comes in basic research, which is what I do. And then it comes in clinical trials. I've had a small amount of experience in that, but those are two very separate. So clinical trials need to speed up and basic research needs infinitely more investment. And you touched on that. The UK will not be a leader while our science funding is at the level it is. Um, Brexit caused enormous problems because we lost European money. There are some arrangements being made now, but a lot of us have lost access. The welcome's redefined itself. The charities are, you know, are broke after, you know, there's no money for this, for this. So while we don't invest in, which is why we need, we really need a new model now. We need very wealthy people to be philanthropically, we need much more philanthropy in this country. We need to be much more opportunistic. We need venture capital, we need investment to, absolutely take some risks, fund some research and, and pump money into the system to get science off its feet across so, the life sciences. You don't sound at all cheered by the fact we have a dedicated science department. In government, that is, <laughs> not in school. We need money. We need right. money. So, yeah. um, we really need money. I mean, it's fine if it comes with money. So the UK DRI, the Dementia Research Institute, was set up. It was David Cameron's initiative um, with Alzheimer's Research and, and ARUK as well, um, and, and the Alzheimer's Association. And, um, and the MRC, as it was then. And um, initially, that was 100 million for the whole of the UK for six centres. And I think that's been renewed now after five years and probably a bit more. But that, that vanishes so quickly. It doesn't even support basic salaries for researchers, you know, and there's no... You, we, we're losing... We're hemorrhaging scientists into industry as well because we can't keep them in academia. We, we, can't, we can't pay their salaries. There's no security. They're, they're young people with families. Their jobs change every two years. So we have a problem with the basic funding model. You can't be creative with research unless you've got brains that are well-paid and well-funded. Well you want to chip in, Susan? Uh, yeah, and I think just to build on the point about research, and we, we've touched on the, sort of the funding and the challenges from, you know, from, from an industry perspective, but this speaks also to the point about diagnosis. If we're diagnosing, if a third of people don't even know they've got a diagnosis, or actually many people are being diagnosed very late, that's often too late for many of the studies. There's not much awareness within the public about about being participating in research. We know from some of the work we've done that actually two-thirds of the general public would be interested to be involved in dementia research. The other challenge is most clinicians aren't actually hugely research active, unlike in oncology, where frankly, you know, you'd almost expect to be offered a trial. That doesn't happen in dementia. I think only 2% of people with a dementia diagnosis are actually involved in, in clinical studies. So there's a real mismatch here about 
you know, it's, it's a vicious circle. We can't find the people to put in the studies and we can't do the studies to then find the kind of progress. And we need to crack that. And this does come back to diagnosis and to sort of where the, the, the pathway may change in the future. So I think there is hope. I think there is a way of doing it if we can canvas money, you know, collectively work together. But, you know, it is a really multifaceted challenge. And there's another aspect as well, which is at the moment, the two sways are huge clinical trials, which are massively expensive, and basic research. And actually, we need a culture of what we call experimental medicine, which are much smaller studies, shorter, quicker, quick and dirty experiments, as it were, which, is, which will able to get people involved, be able to give us some answers, and aren't only run by industry with an interest, interest in you know, marketing their drugs or whatever. So that would also... We just need a, we need, we need a kind of earthquake or a bit of seismic plate shifting in, in how we structure our research. How easy is it to do quick and dirty experiments in the NHS? So I think I've only ever it's heard not, that phrase in relation in the, to hospital cleaning. No, no, nothing's in the NHS. It's all, it's all um, done externally right. and under other regulations. But you can do small studies on pilot populations, but it just, you need more access. You need more, I think you made the point, we need to be, clinicians need to be more active in this, in this space, which they're not particularly, they are in universities, but they're, we're up, you know, in Cambridge, we've got a huge rural community. We can't get people to come in, you know, there's all sorts of issues, uh, demographics, etc. So you just have to make the, the structures more accessible and smaller studies over shorter periods, even just getting people in through the door, just, just as you were saying, getting that involvement. Debbie. Yeah, no, I just wanted to pay uh, credit really to, to David Cameron in terms of what he did, because this, we're talking about an absolute culture change, aren't we? Um, and uh, we need, for example, um, that sort of leadership and the delivery of the dementia moonshot, which everybody will remember was about doubling um, the uh, dementia research fund from, from government. And then that will help to sort of open the doors in, in, in other areas. And that, that hasn't happened, but it does need, it's absolutely key that we have that, yeah. that leadership. And, it, and, you know, it needs to be at an international level as, as well. That's I key. absolutely agree. With poor as a public health consultant, I was a biochem, so I absolutely uh, uh, agree that we have the, the real talent, as you rightly said, Giovanna, that we, we showed um, in, in, in the pandemic about how we can solve these big, big problems but we just need the leadership to open the doors provide the funding and enable us to fly and there's again the um APPG undertook um uh, an inquiry on this about the economic benefits of, of doing this to the country of being a world leader in in, in this form of research as well mm. but it currently and uh, I, I think Susan be able to correct me I think it's improved slightly but it was at less than 10 percent in terms of the, the the funding for cancer goes to dementia research so it's, it's slightly improved but it's it's still really really low I can't remember the exact stat off the top of my head but it is yeah, I think it's, I mean, certainly we sort of had one in one dementia researcher compared to every six cancer researchers at one stage. So, you know, we're just, we're behind um, and we understand why, but I think there is that opportunity. Great. Well, I think I'll open up to questions from the floor and I think there will be a microphone. Thank you. Hi there. My name's David Talbot. I'm a uh, Head of Public Affairs at Ovid Health. And I was a question to what Emily was talking around, patient pathways. And part of the problem is we don't have a uh, coherent understanding what good 
the standard of care looks like with dementia because obviously, most obviously, people's dementia and their needs are so unique and different to them. Debbie talked about different ethnicities and different locations having different diagnoses and different characteristics. So moving forward, particularly as you're talking about this being a really transformative moment for standard of dementia care in the UK, how do we reflect the innate personal elements within patient pathways moving forwards? Um, maybe I'll start, but I guess we do see, so we do have things like brain health clinics in some parts of the NHS where, you know, we have people sort of managing in a more holistic way and in a more individual way, patients as they come through and have a, say, a, say memory loss. So we do see that there are pockets. It's just that it's very inconsistent across the country. So we're not seeing equitable access to those kind of personalised um, and focused investigation pathways, if you like. I don't know whether either of you could comment more on that. Um, but I guess we do, we do have it in pockets. It's just not consistent. It looks like you all want to comment, so Debbie. <laughs> so um, again, the APPG undertook an inquiry on workforce issues around social social care. Again, as you rightly said, that there's a, a massive difference. Um, again, inequalities in the type of care from absolutely fantastic examples of how to make that care personalised, to make it to ensure that somebody can live as good a life as possible for as long as, as, as possible. And it really need, it needs to focus, as I say, on, on the workforce and uh, ensure we have consistency in care, well-trained staff, and that we recognise them through remuneration as well. I mean, I, I agree that there's huge variation. And I think some of that is, is about the workforce, but it's also about access to the different diagnostics and sort of that broader system supports someone with a diagnosis and their journey through a dementia pathway. Some places have access to cutting-edge diagnostics and others don't. I don't see how you can adjust your offer to each individual if you don't actually have that equitable base. So there's, there's something about the equity of access to, to different aspects of dementia care which simply aren't there yet and hopefully will be improved in the future. Yeah. I was just going to add one thing just about also we don't even necessarily have consistency clinically who sees patients with dementia. So I, I guess some people may not be aware of that, but you know, some people go to a sort of an old age psychiatrist type of practitioner some people go to a neurologist some people end up going through to their GP so there's there's a lot of inconsistency even in terms of that first person that someone sees thank you very much for that uh, another question in the front row just there probably not a, a very popular one but what you say about people being eligible for a search and not necessarily being picked up and whether there's the reimbursement model with the GPs the fact that there's lack of gerontologists in here I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about like assisted dying in this because obviously it's a non-starter for Dignitas for people to do that and if they're not eligible for any kind of treatment to slow their disease and they know what's going to happen at the other end you know what are your thoughts of that going going forward Oh, this was going to be a hopeful panel, but um, anyone want to chip in on that? <laughs> yeah, well, it wouldn't be right, my preferred route. I'd rather find a more creative route. So I've done dementia clinics for 30 years, and I really feel that when, you know, when people first come in with their partners, they're elderly, they've got some memory loss, etc. if you could hold them there or slow down progression, You've done a huge surface. You keep people at home. You keep them with meaningful relationships. Their lives don't disintegrate. I think that's what we should be focusing on and not on managing the, the exit. And not, not every dementia experience is completely bleak either. 
you know, a lot of people die of other things. And um, yeah, I think that's overwhelmingly nihilistic from, from my point of view. Now, I was really struck by Alistair Stewart when he recently talked about his diagnosis of dementia, where he said that he didn't expect to go do Lally, but it was going to make his life a lot harder, which I thought was... I was really I mean, the, the rate of evolution, how people, you know, what they experience. I mean, your mother had it. Um, it's very variable. Um, my mother-in-law had it and died of it. She still had a very meaningful quality mm. of life with meaningful relationships right to the end. Mm. So I think it's a really difficult one. Debbie, I, I can't remember what position you've taken on assisted dying in the various debates that have happened in, in Parliament. So, so I, I'm, I don't support it, um, uh, and that's not just because of my my mum's experience. My mum-in-law also um, had vascular dementia, so my mum had Alzheimer's, my mother-in-law had vascular uh, dementia. Something that we say in, within the Alzheimer's Society, who I should mention because they provide the secretariat and do a fantastic uh, job for us, we, we don't call about people suffering with dementia. It, we, And I fundamentally believe, and I, as I say, talk as somebody who cared for people with dementia, you can live well with dementia. Um, we were incredibly lucky, both with my mum and my uh, mother-in-law, but we we had enough support, wraparound support within the family to allow my mum loved animals. She still enjoyed the garden. She 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 had a good life for as long as 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 as, as she could. Yeah, I guess this. I guess it gets sorry to the point around. There's the like you say, living well with it, it's not a, you know, there's, I guess it's multifaceted. If we can, if we can hopefully diagnose people earlier and help them, it's not just about access to treatments. That's a tiny, tiny part. As you mentioned, it's more, it's also access to support services. Support services, not only for the individual living with the condition, but for their carers and for their family members around them. And when we talk about access to services, it isn't just the medical therapeutic input it's a lot of it is the support understanding what's happening understanding if there's any modifiable risk factors at an early stage that, that person could you know could engage with that may help them to slow decline so it's, it's very multifaceted it's not certainly not about just treatment it's about support as well I mean, I, I agree with the other um, panelists I think it's that Venn diagram of you've got quality of life and you've got dementia and they can overlap so you've got good quality of life with dementia but you can also have poor quality of life, not be due to menstrual, or, you know, so I, I think the reality is they, they, they can overlap, but they are quite distinct, and there are things you can do to drag both apart. Thank you for that question. Um... Hello, uh, Jonathan Snecker, Chair of Artemarker Diagnostics. I was wondering if the panel could speak to issues around sport and concussion and early onset dementia. Uh, we're working with uh, another uh, private health company to work on uh, diagnosing early onset and finding uh, biomarkers in the blood. Obviously, this is an issue because it's affecting young people very early on. Sport is related to health. Could the panel speak to that, please? What's your campaigning position on uh, so many live cases at the moment, particularly within rugby and other you know, heavy contact sports? Yeah, so, um, I mean, obviously, uh, traumatic brain injury is one of the 12 risk factors identified within the Lancet Commission, which is a kind of summary of the key risk factors for dementia. So that is recognised. Obviously, traumatic brain injury isn't just about sport. Um, Alzheimer's Research UK did do a, a sort of scoping piece a few years ago looking at the evidence base. The evidence base is very poor because, inevitably, you're looking at 
sport at one stage and how that tracks through to developing dementia, either at a younger age or in later life. I think what's really interesting is to see how the different professional sports industry, sports associations are trying to kind of work on this and better understand the situation. I think you also have to recognise there's a huge difference between an elite sports person doing a high-impact sport such as rugby and, as a mother of a 12-year-old son who plays football quite a bit, the health benefits of playing football on a regular basis. So I think the reality is it's a complex interplay here. There are benefits from sport and exercise, which we should encourage everyone to do, good for your heart health and your brain health. Um, Obviously, there are more specific risks which can be conferred by particular sports. There is more to do in this space. I think we need to understand it better. There's clearly, you know, yet more to understand. I can't say it's in my area of expertise, so... I mean, it's not sport, is it? It's head injury that's the problem. So that's what you... So it's, it's contact sports where you hit your head. So football, rugby, boxing. Um, and I think all of those associations are well aware. There's absolutely cast iron evidence that it's a risk factor that um it predisposes you know animal models can replicate this it's 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 absolute risk factor for dementia no doubt about it and it's for those associations to decide what they do about it i mean uh, you know you should just they shouldn't head the ball (laughs) they really shouldn't it's not good for them it's not that we know that from the incidence of uh increased rate factors for dementia i mean traumatic brain injury is absolutely a risk factor but sport itself is a good thing so I was just going to mention Rugby League Cares. Uh, that that was launched um, just before Christmas. Uh, Kevin Sinfield, who's one of my constituents, is, is driving that particularly in relation to not just dementia, but but also in terms of other motor neurone disease. You'll probably know his his um, his, his friend uh, Rob Burrows and the impact there. But I think the yeah the sports. Um, the sports associations need to, to to look at it in that context, and I think uh, Giovanna's mentioned the, the the three areas in particular, the three sports where there's a particular risk factor. My, my I'd like to say about cricket as well, because <laughs> yeah, um, you can, if you get hit in the head, the ball's coming at you quite fast, and uh, you you can suffer a con- nasty concussion. But I think a precautionary a principle should apply, and, and sports bodies should be uh, should be looking at that. You say sports bodies should be looking at that. Is there a greater role for government in regulating uh, what sports bodies have to mandate within the rules of their own sports? I mean, if if you have, for instance, a sport like boxing where being hit on the head is, you know, kind of integral to the sport, a lot of people would argue, unlike cricket where it's sort of incidental, is there not a role for government to step in and say, no, that, you know, you, you are putting people at too much risk? Just as you do with smoking. I think for when it's children, uh, and I think that's where the uh, most action has taken uh, place, um, that is something that sports bodies should... Well, if, if, if they don't regulate for it, and I think most of them have now. Again, that was a part of the inquiry that we had on, on, on research, and they gave evidence to the inquiry. They have taken a position about children as, you know, their brains are developing. That's particularly an issue there. But I wouldn't rush into to, to, uh, regulation and, uh, and legislation. I think just one other point is obviously, as Giovanna said, it's about head injury. And I think an area where we really probably need to see more research is also the relationship between head injury and intimate partner violence, for example. A lot of people will face head injury through that particular scenario and that's completely under research so I think there are we need to look at it holistically sport is is the kind of 
the canary here, but actually there's a much broader issue around a head injury that probably isn't fully researched. Okay. Any more questions? Uh, right at the back, standing up. Um, there's overwhelming evidence that diet plays a very important role in the development of Alzheimer's. Um, Debbie, you've talked, you talked about um, people being undernourished and food banks, so I'll, I'll, if you want to add more in a minute, that, that would be great, but I'll just ask the other panel, panel members to chip in as well. I mean, clearly diet has a role as one of the risk factors for dementia. You know, there's, there seems to be in, interest in around the idea of that kind of the Mediterranean diet being broadly good. I think some of that's probably indirectly due to the kind of the benefits it confers for your heart health, which we know then the cardiovascular system supports your brain health. I think that's there and absolutely there's a range of different ways we need to do as, as Debbie's touched on already in terms of how we enable people to equitably access a, a nutritionally balanced, healthy and, you know, enjoyable diet as well. Absolutely. It's, it's a crucial factor which is, extends beyond dementia. Yeah, and I guess I just add that there's, you know, we know it's very multifactorial. So certain types of dementia may be more impl influenced by, for example, dietary choices, other forms of dementia, which are you know, primarily genetic-driven dementias are going to be much more influenced by, by genetics. So it's a very mixed picture depending on what type of dementia we're talking about. And these are, this is a very heterogeneous group of diseases. So just something to remember. No, pass for you. Debbie? No? Fine. Okay, thank you very, very much. Um, we are coming to the end of this panel now. And um, thank you so much to our panel. I think we've covered a huge uh, range of aspects of dementia research and treatment um, and thank you so much for being so clear and so passionate and also so hopeful as well so thank you Susan, Emily, Debbie and Giovanna just give them a round of applause thank you, thank you.